Hi, I'm Tim Sanova, and welcome to Work Shouldn't Suck Live, the morning-ish show. On today's episode, Lauren Ruffin and I are joined by Christine Bader. Christine is the co-founder with Eva Dino of The Life I Want, where they're examining the role of work and business in our society and lives. She's the author of When Girl Meets Oil, Evolution of a Corporate Idealist, written following her roles in policy and planning at BP. She was the former director of social responsibility at Amazon, previously held roles at the United Nations and Columbia University, working at the intersection of human rights and business, and is a fellow member of the Amy Rosneski Fan Club. Without further ado, Christine, welcome to the show. All right, welcome to the show. There we go. (laughs) Thank you again (laughs) for having me. Yay. Good morning. Good morning. So one of the questions that we've been opening up with our guests for the yesterday when we did this was, how are you? How are you? How's your community doing? Oh, (laughs) well, how are we doing? It's up and down. It's up and down. I'd say the last couple of days have been tough. I've got seven-year-old twins here. So my husband and I are managing the best we can, but the kids are missing school, which is obviously a wonderful thing to be grateful for, but it's a little rough. (laughs) I mean, we're healthy and we're safe and all those things to be grateful for, but this is definitely a difficult time. So can you tell us a little bit about sort of how you found yourself on this path, I watched your TED talk, so I know, but I'd love for you to give us a quick sort of intro into how you got to the place where you are at home all day with the kids and writing books and consulting. Oh, sure. Let's see. How far back should we go? Well, I'll go to 2015. I got the job at Amazon that on paper looked like the job I've been working towards my whole career. I've been working in corporate social responsibility working for BP, formerly British Petroleum, writing that book that Tim, you kindly held up and landed this job at Amazon. And so my family, we packed up, my husband left his job in New York and we packed up our kids, moved to Seattle. And I took this job and it was great. It was fun to be in this really historic company and I got to build this amazing team. And then one day, just over a year and a half in, I got home to my husband and our kids who were four years old at the time. And they were sitting on the couch reading as they often were when I got home from work, but they were reading to him. And I thought, when did you learn how to read? (laughs) And, you know, I wasn't working crazy hours, but just mentally, I wasn't as present as I wanted to be. And I had my kids when I was 40. I'm not having any more kids. (laughs) And so I was never going to have another three-year-old or four-year-old or five-year-old. And I could see what my life was going to look like. And in some ways, it was like, well, of course, why wouldn't I do that? Because my parents did that. And everybody who I know does that, meaning the work kids life juggle. So it took me a while to give myself permission to articulate that I didn't want to do that. And I didn't have to. So I left, which was a hard decision, but I left in 2017. We hung out in Seattle for another year after Mm -hmm. that, and then decided to go on a much bigger adventure. So we packed up and heard about the school called the Green School in Bali, which is all about sustainability. So enrolled our kids there for the last school year. And we can talk more about that if you're interested. Yeah, I'm fascinated. Um, Yeah. And then uh, landed back here because my husband is also an ex-corporate person and had been working on his photography. So had really honed in on 
his love and appreciation of artisans practicing their craft. And so pitched mm-hmm. to A to Z Wineworks, the largest wine producer here in Oregon, to do a kind of year in the life Very familiar project. with that Pinot Noir. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> Excellent. So he's now their first artist in residence. So he's documenting a year in the life of the vineyard. This is so, I'm really excited. Okay. <laughs> so tell us about Bali. Yeah, Bali. Gosh. So I had lived in Jakarta in Indonesia's capital, you know, the year 2000, working for BP. And so I had these kind of hazy, rosy, foggy memories of jetting off to Bali for the weekend with my crazy ultimate Frisbee playing friends and for these, you know, really fun partying weekends. And so I thought, It'll be just like that. (laughs) (laughs) With my twin (laughs) four-year-olds. Exactly. And so somebody asked me the other day what advice I would have for people looking to do an adventure like that. And I would say, first of all, stay the heck off of Instagram. (laughs) Mm Because it's like, oh, it'll all be smoothies and swings. And, And we got there and I just forgot what it was like being in Southeast Asia. You know, we get in the car from the airport and... We pull out and we're surrounded by a swarm of motorbikes, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I'd forgotten about, but my husband and my kids had never experienced. We were like, <laughs> what have we done? <laughs> so there was that. And then there were three big earthquakes in the first month that we were there, which was physically and psychologically unsettling. And so I had just forgotten about all the risks of being there, the health mm-hmm. risks of dengue and rabies and the lack of road safety and infrastructure and potable tap water and all the things that we take for granted. So I will say that it was the family adventure that we were looking for. Mm -hmm. And we learned how to live out of one suitcase each. So that I have all these lessons and takeaways about consumption that we can talk more about and just how little we need, right? And being in this place and living in a village where we were surrounded by people who made much better use of what they have than we do here and really live in a way that embodies community and spirituality and nature and all these things that it was really profound for us to experience. That's amazing. You've officially made me second guess my desire to, I lived in Australia for a year and I really want to bring my wife and kids there. And now I'm like, I don't know. Let me, let me really go back and find these memories to see what this is going to be like with 20 uh-huh. years later with two kids. It'll be different. (laughs) It'll be different. But, you know, we're going to have a through line for this conversation, which is wine. The Barossa Valley in Australia, another great wine place. Absolutely. Uh, And my writing partner, Eva. So part of her backstory is that she left her job in San Francisco a couple of years ago to move to Australia with her Australian husband, winemaker, mm -hmm. to run their family vineyard, which they'd been putting together for 10 years. Amazing. Uh, And ATR Wines, and they've won some awards, and they're in Australia. And so she went from being a full-time communications professional to doing freelance writing and being part of running this wine business. And so she's building the life that she wants. And that's part of how we were inspired to launch this storytelling project, because I've been on this journey to figure out what do I want to be when I grow up, and what do I want my life to look like, and how do I put those things together? So that's what the life I want is about. 
one of the pieces that Lauren and I discussed in or referenced in an earlier podcast episode that we did was the one where you interviewed Christopher De La Cruz and wrote a piece called Work is the New Religion. And that concept has been on my mind for some time after reading your piece as I meditated on it. And then the work of our friend Amy Rosneski around job career calling. Can you recap that piece for people who might not be familiar with it and sort of your thoughts on it several months on now? Yeah, happy to. So when we launched this project, I put out a call on Facebook, just a general call for people to share stories about people who were thinking about work differently. And a high school friend put me in touch with her pastor, Reverend Christopher De La Cruz of First Presbyterian Church in Jamaica, Queens. And I interviewed him because he's launching a co-working space for the young adults in his congregation that they're calling 2030 Dream Hub. And it seemed to dovetail nicely with all the statistics that we've all seen drawing on research from that Atlantic article by Derek Thompson on workism and research from the Pew Research Center and the Economic Policy Institute and the Public Religion Research Institute that 45% of U.S. workers define themselves by their job or their employer. And the percentage of Americans who don't identify with any religion has tripled in the last 25 years, and it's now at about 25%. A third of Americans under the age of 30 have no religious affiliation. And we all know kind of intuitively that working hours are up, attendance at religious services is down. So what the Reverend wanted to do is he got a grant from something called the Zoe Project, and it's a joint initiative of the Princeton Theological Seminary and the Lilly Endowment of reaching churches, reaching young adults in new ways. So he launched this co-working space, and we had a fascinating conversation about the tensions that he's experiencing, right? Because he wants to help financially empower his community. But he said, how do we empower folks without idolizing the American narrative of work being the only source of meaning? So there's this inherent tension in what he's doing, which I found fascinating. So he's like, okay, well, I'm setting it up in the old parsonage house and it's a house. So there are all these different rooms. And can we create one room that's just for meditation and reflection? And so that's what the piece was about, just how whether or not you live a religious or a spiritual life, how does that come into play? How does it fit with work? We have a question from one of our viewers. If work is our new religion, basically giving us idea, do you have advice for people right now who are suddenly finding themselves underemployed and feeling a sudden loss of identity? Oh, gosh. The only piece of advice I always give people is never to follow anybody else's advice. Excellent advice. (laughs) Because nobody knows what you need to thrive. And that's part of why Eva and I are taking this approach of sharing stories, right? We're sharing other people's stories. We're not writing the 10-step manual to, here's how to be happier at work and in life. And, And so... Diana, I guess all I would say is to look for examples out there right now. And there's such good writing emerging right now of people being reflective and thoughtful. I assume these people don't have school-age kids, but, you know, (laughs) such good writing right now of people who are thinking about their identity exactly because of what you raise. And so I think just look for other people's stories. I'm not going to give any trite advice on how other people should find meaning in their days because 
I'm having enough trouble with that right now. And <laughs> but it really is about looking for other people's stories. And I think also now fiction and great literature is also a really nice place to look. One of the things you wrestle with on The Life I Want, and it's something we've discussed in, in our own journey and in wrestling with, and you've talked with our fractionalist colleagues, Courtney Hart and Nicola Carpenter about this, is privilege. And in particular, specifically white privilege. And when you think about crafting your work, crafting your life, this shows up so much in creating a life we want. For me, these days, I've well, the phrase that's been rallying around is privilege and pandemic. And when we think about virtual work and remote work and who has the opportunity to do that, or do you have a home office or do you have a kitchen table or do you have a high-speed internet access or are you borrowing from the building or do you have kids that you have to homeschool and take care of? And can you talk a little bit about your journey? You've written about it on the website for people who want to know more, but can you sort of talk about this journey that you've been on? I will say that Eva and I in this project are hell-bent on making sure that this is not a story of privilege, that this is not that, <laughs> you know, it's not about everybody moving to Bali, <laughs> right? And one of the things that is a tenet, a foundational belief of this project that is actually underscored by this pandemic is that we can't thrive unless we all can thrive, and so it can't be about the work-life balance conversation, which tends to only occur above a certain income level and people who can drop $28.95 on a hardback or whatever, that it's not about those people being able to be even happier. There has to be that our project is also about the collective. So right now, Eva and I are thinking about this in terms of four pillars of how do we fix work. It is partly about our individual relationship with work and how do you think about that, but shifting your individual relationship with work and how you think about work will only help so much if you're working in a hostile environment, which is why we're also looking at employers like you guys who are really on these journeys to be a truly equitable workplace. We also want to look at communities, like how are communities supporting each other? And that is obviously coming to the fore right now. How do communities in and outside of work support you in living the life that you want? And then finally, governments, what are the structural obstacles? And that's like too obvious to even get into right now. So we're looking at it in these four pillars because Again, a lot of these books about like being happier at work are just about like, be happier, right? Like change your attitude and it'll all like, be okay. So that's about the project. And I think as Eva and I are writing, like any good authors for us, this is also personal. And we are both acknowledging our privilege and the fact that we even have the time and luxury and energy to be able to take on doing this project. And so for me, my privilege is always about like, well, how do I use that to serve? And I think also part of the lesson of being in Bali last year is also realizing like what is enough and that we have, we have enough. We're not rolling in it <laughs> and the kids are going to have to pay their own way through college, but we've got, we've got enough. And so that's part of what we hope to pick apart 
too is how do we think about people's individual relationships with work and money and power and then also layer on all these structural pieces of the very real obstacles of healthcare, cost of education, cost of childcare, and all those things. So privilege is a theme that runs strong through this project and through every conversation that even I have about how we're going about it. It's a pretty radical idea to even begin to think that work should make you happy. My father's attitude about work is work is the thing that sucks so bad it makes you appreciate the rest of life so much more. <laughs> so that's how, that's how I was raised, right? Work is terrible, yeah. but the purpose of it being terrible is that you can really appreciate play that much more. Right? <laughs> if all of life is fun, you know, like, and that's I mean that's that's was my attitude about working. It's privilege, but it's actually yeah. subtly really freaking radical. As I was watching your TED Talk, one, you're living in a town called McMinnsville? McMinnville. McMinnville. Yeah. I grew up in a town named Woodstown. And I was thinking those towns with those basic names are <laughs> probably pretty similar, except now yeah. I know that there's a winery there. So although we have wineries <laughs> in Woodstown now, I, I grew really? up, now the town I grew up in, which was the town with the oldest rodeo in the United States, is now New Jersey wine country. New Jersey wine country. Mm -hmm. Bring it on. Uh -huh. um, but as you're talking, I'm thinking about, we still had vocational school and I grew up in the church and I was always fascinated by vocational school. And I wanted to take class. I wanted to drive. I want to get my CDL and drive a truck across the country. My dad was like, absolutely not. You're taking college prep courses. So yeah. I did. And I'm like, well, why do the, these kids get to have a vocation? Like being a plumber or a truck driver is a calling. Yeah. And college prep is just going to go do this thing that's kind of slogging through life. But as you're talking about, as you were talking about the pastor who set up a co-working space, it strikes me that there's, there's a lot of synergy in that work yeah. and in thinking about work as religion and who gets to think about work as religion and who gets to think about work as just slogging through life. I love the way you're putting that out there, because I think part of my evolution in thinking about work just in the past year since we launched the blog and have put out the call for stories and have gotten a lot back. In part, this project grew out of Eva and I having these really interesting discussions about fixed work or blank work. Mm -hmm. And because interested in all these stories about great employers and a part of me was like, man, I had my dream job and it just didn't work. Mm -hmm. And so for a while I was like, man, work just doesn't work. It just doesn't work, right? But some of the interviews and the stories and picking up Studs Terkel's working again, you know, a classic book of interviews of people from, gosh, almost 50 years ago now, right? You know, I have come to realize that work is also how people find their place in the world. That's not all good because people are put in a place, right, and viewed a certain way by the work that they do. But it is how a lot of people figure out, how am I of service to society? Mm -hmm. Where do I fit here? And again, obviously, there's a dark side to that. But work is how a lot of us figure out our place in the world. I have moved off of that work is bad thing. And like, nobody should have to work. And let's just pump up the universal basic income. And nobody should have to work. And people should just do what they want to do. But I get the value to work. And even in my own journey, I've, I definitely went through this period of like, I am not working <laughs> again. Like, But now I get it that again, there are skills and experiences that I have that I want to deploy to serve. 
And so now it's just figuring out, okay, well, what does that look like? How do I piece together a life that enables me to do the things that I want to do and tend to my family and have a sense of place and be active in my community and do all those things? It's more just like, how do I construct that is the question. Viewer question, wondering if you're finding stories that people who prefer to or have to keep their identity slash thriving, thriving slash being separate from their compensated employment. Yeah, this is such a good question. And I'm fascinated by, I actually interviewed a couple yesterday that I hope I'll be able to profile on the blog in the coming months. And they're a married couple who work together and they're doing a venture now. And they talked about how they have completely different approaches to work. And so one of them is like, you know, somebody will criticize my company. And I'm like, oh, that's really interesting. How can I fix it? I'm so sorry you feel that way. And the other partner is like, I just feel attacked. Like I I just feel like somebody has punched me in the face (laughs) if somebody (laughs) criticizes my company. I think it's such a good question. And it is one that I struggle with. And one of the many topics that that I look to our friend Amy Rosniewski's work for because we see both sides of the good and bad of both. Part of why my last job didn't work out for me is that I couldn't leave it in the office. Even though I could, like I left my laptop in the office and I didn't have calls at night and I didn't do work, but I couldn't mentally compartmentalize it. And so part of me admires people who can do that. But then the other side of it is obvious, which is that if we're going to spend so much of our time and our energy and our identity tied up in work, like it had better be something that's meaningful and that I care about. I'm finding both and I'm not placing a value judgment on either, but I'm just curious about both because I've certainly had days where I'm like, God, I would just love a job where I can just go and somebody will just tell me what to do for a couple hours a day and I'm part of a structure with infrastructure and an organization and processes. And part of me thinks that would be really nice for a little while. And then part of me knows that maybe it wouldn't. Another viewer question, how can people who are trying to find sanctity in their work or already do so counter the rising survivor's guilt they may feel in the current situation? How can this reframing help them? Wow, that's heavy. Rising survivor's guilt. Well, you serve. I mean, you give it all back and give till it hurts and volunteer if you can and give your money if you can't. That's what we're doing here. I know our food banks need volunteers. I'm not in a position to be able to do that right now, but we're giving giving as much money as we can to our local food bank and to our local shops and to our local independent store and to the restaurants that are shutting down right now and I don't know. I mean, again, this is one of those things where I'm not going to advise other people not knowing other people's situation, but I don't know if you can have guilt about survival, assuming that you're not doing it at the expense of others. Right? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know, but I think that's going to be one of the questions that emerges. How do you serve? How do you be part of acknowledging what helped you thrive and survive and honor that? Yeah. So we've got a couple minutes left. I have more questions, but hopefully I'll get a chance in the future, make the rest of the folks out there jealous. But as we're wrapping, do you have anything that you feel like our audience should know or anything that's sort of particularly pressing top of mind right now you want to share? Oh, gosh. I mean, this time is just so everything is up in the air, right? Everything's an unknown. 
And I just, I mean, I'm still an idealist and I'm still an optimist, even with all of the privilege that I have, I'm finding this time incredibly difficult. So I guess my hope and my call is that as we, as we all try to figure out how to rebuild, that we do it in a different way and that we rethink every move, whether it's moving back towards going back into the office or spending the way that you used to or consuming the way that you used to that each step back in is thoughtful and deliberate and in keeping with building the life that we want and the communities that we want and the societies that we want. Christine, thank you so much for being on the episode with us today. Absolutely wonderful to spend time with you. Continue the Work Shouldn't Suck Live adventure with us when on our next episode, we're joined by Laura Zabel, Executive Director of Springboard for the Arts. If you've enjoyed the conversation or are just feeling generous today, please consider writing a review on iTunes so that others who might be interested in the topic can join the fun too. Give it a thumbs up or five stars or phone a friend, whatever your podcasting platform of choice offers. If you didn't enjoy this chat, please tell someone about it who you don't like as much. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.